Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is the author of Layered Money, From Gold and Dollars to Bitcoin and Central Bank Digital Currencies. This is by Nick Batia. If you have not read this book, go pick it up. It's so damn great. It gives such a great overview of our financial legacy system. There's some history thrown in there as well. We even talk about tulips in this book. Thank you, Nick. And uh, leads us into the financialization process of Bitcoin and what that's going to look like with Bitcoin sitting at the very top of the monetary system and the things that are going to come underneath it and ways of financial services. So really excellent book. Definitely worth you guys checking it out. This episode, as always, is brought to you by coinfloor.co.uk. In uh, the UK, you can stack sats with these guys. They are the only exchange with 100% proof of reserves. They do this every month, not once a year. So you can trust these guys. It's great service. Across uh, Europe, you can stack sats. DCA with relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten. Exchange your euros and Swiss into Satoshis and do the same in the US of A with swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Brilliant bunch of Bitcoiners. Have your back. Sign up. Get a free 10 bucks with that link. Now you know what I'm going to say. You've got to take control. Not your keys, not your coins. Please move anything that you've got off the apps, off the exchanges. Get control of them. Use a hardware wallet. That is the best way to start this journey. You can use shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten get a 5% discount on the BitBox 02 hardware wallet, Bitcoin only edition. Let's do this show with Nick. Thanks for listening. All right, cool. Good to go. Nick, great to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So uh, you've already been introduced to Lauren, just a pre-record with, uh, as you called us, uh, reading our bedtime story of layered money. Uh, what, uh, <laughs> what's your first question then, Lauren, to Nick about mm-hmm. uh, the book? Why did you uh, write layered money? I wrote layered money because I thought, I think that Bitcoin isn't well understood still. Uh, Bitcoin is, you know, it was 11 years old at the time when I started writing and uh, but really it was only five years old to me and i knew that even after five years of study and being amongst a lot of people you know that had heard of bitcoin i just knew it wasn't fully understood yet and so i tried to and many people have tried to explain what is bitcoin and i had an idea that i could explain bitcoin in this layered manner which had never been done before. And it would be a new, a truly new way to explain Bitcoin. And so that's why I wrote the book because I had an idea about how to explain it in a, in a truly different way. And he'd probably run out of dry powder. 
So it's, you know. <laughs> what do you mean he, he probably ran out? Well, you know, like you stack as hard as you can when you've got yeah. the fiat. And then you write the book or you start the podcast to try and pump the price, right, Nick? Because, yeah. uh, you know, for the, the plebs out there are probably thinking. A hundred percent. So the, that's the first order effect, uh, Lauren. And the second order effect is that you write, it to you, you write it to educate people. That's the first order. But the second order is that once people are educated, they buy and it supports the position. And so like it drives the price up. So yeah, you have to write something that gets people to agree with your position. So it's in the bond world where I come from, it's called talking your book. And so this is literally me talking my book. <laughs> or Guy Swan talked your book very well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Big shout out for Guy because I was listening to that today. I, I've got the hard copy and I've got the uh, audio as well. So I, I've done... Mate, I've, I've done the audio twice and I've read the actual book. I, I just prefer having the book. I love it. Uh, Lauren's going to go. Yeah, because yeah. I need to get to a class. Okay. So say, good, right. say goodbye. Bye. Uh, so it, it's great work, mate. And coming from a, the financial markets myself, uh, I can really kind of um, connect with the, with, with the idea that you're trying to put across. We, we've both probably seen new products come to pass you know whether it be on but we always use this term wall street i don't know why you know my my career was in singapore i don't i think yours was on the west coast right but you know That's it's, right. right it's synonymous right so we'll just use wall street you know new new products come to uh, come to pass we see how they're put into um circulation and we see how they pick up steam and then we see how they um you know kind of blossom into something slightly different to what they were ever intended to be um so I, i'm losing my train of thought i've gone off complete tangent already down a random rabbit hole but that's the reason i liked your book it, it really resonated with me thinking yes holy shit bitcoin's the new base layer like all markets we have right now any derivatives that we have of any financial instrument will move over to Bitcoin and Bitcoin will sit the top of the pyramid. Like you explained in your book, everything else will trickle down underneath that. And that, that thought hit me the other day. And I included you in the, in the tweet that I put out there because I, I was in a group running it past um, safe. And we had a, a, a chat the other night on his, um, his weekly call. But it suddenly clicks for me. It's like, wow, wait, like the difficulty adjustment is going to be one of these first layers of financialization around Bitcoin. And, you know, Safe pulled out the best meme. He called it, you know, hashtag new Fed, which uh, it, it is amazing, right? Every two weeks or X amount of blocks or whatever it is, we're going to know the exact difficulty adjustment of that. Everything gets settled. Every derivative that's been placed around that gets settled. And then off we go to the races again for the next, uh, that next epoch. So I'd like to run that past you. Like, uh, like you, how does that fit into your kind of playbook of how this all starts layering itself out? Yeah. And that's part of, I think what is so special about, uh, the Bitcoin standard is it is an expose of the difficulty adjustments power um, and novelty. And um, 
yet, you know, Jack Mahlers was talking about uh, difficulty adjustment derivatives two years ago. And so, you know, yes, I completely agree with you. It's, it's so uh, fascinating the the difficulty adjustment, you know, it, it might be the most beautiful thing about Bitcoin. And I, it's, it's, it's also hard to argue against that because it's part of the security mechanism. It's part of the decentralization. It's part of the um, future proofing. And, and so there's so many things about it. So um, it's going to be part, you know, definitely a huge part of what I'm writing next, um, which is a deeper dive into Bitcoin's valuation and, you know, the characteristics of the network itself. And the difficulty adjustment is kind of right there in, in, in chapter one, front and center. And understanding it requires, you know, going back and understanding mining and hashing and and the energy and all of that stuff. So that's going to be there, but you know, it's been explained. We have to really understand why the difficulty adjustment is so important and what other things it can it can drive. And it's completely, you know separate from the layering, you know, idea here. It's just, this is embedded in Bitcoin and, and what it is as a commodity. And so Bitcoin really is a commodity first. It's a numerical virtual commodity first and foremost. And the difficulty adjustment is front and center in that, in that characteristic. Next book, Nick, like this one didn't kill you. Like you, you're going straight back in. I am. Uh, well, and it's not straight back in because I took about six months to search, you know, first of all, to decide whether to do it and then to search for the ideas and then to be inspired and then to capture it and stuff. So I uh, haven't actually put um, um, fingers to keyboard, but I have put pen to paper. I have started with, uh, with my notepad. Well, man, that's a big undertaking. Really uh, look forward to, to seeing how that pans out because like I said, this book's brilliant. It's very, very well done. Before we get into it and start um, talking through, uh, you know, the, the different ideas in it, let's learn a little bit more about yourself. If you, if you wouldn't mind, if we kind of like uh, wound the clock back, where, where were you growing up and, um, you know, what were you studying throughout school and what, what ultimately... How did you end up becoming a bond trader? Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles. So I was born and raised here. And um, I even went to college here in Los Angeles at USC. So I lived here pretty much um, you know, all my life until I went to Spain for one year for business school. And, um, you know, but I traveled to and from India a lot as a kid. So, um, I've really, you know, grown up as a world, uh, you know, as a world citizen type of mentality, especially being an Indian, uh, of Indian heritage from the United States with family in India and having strong connections to India. And my wife is born and raised in India now as well. So, you know, very strong kind of world uh, citizen uh, inclinations as opposed to being just an American. Um, which I am, you know, a very proud American, and and it, being an American um, that is of Indian descent is something that makes me, I think, uniquely American. And uh, as I think a lot of um, immigrant and descendant of immigrant families feel that 
we, you know, we are extra appreciative of the freedom opportunity and the empowerment that we get with, uh, you know, these cultural and legal traditions in the United States that wouldn't have, <clears throat> wouldn't have been there for me in, in, in India where you kind of have to lock in your career by 10th grade. And, uh, yeah. uh I, I, I always noticed that growing up and, you know, with, with cousins that are studying for board exams and, you know, choosing their college track and, you know, for, you know, when they're 14 or whatever. So, um, Anyway, I, I studied, I, I traveled the world and I, that was, you know, pretty influential in what interested me, um, which ended up being geopolitics and global macroeconomics. It's just like being in airports, you know, you know, be, you know, being in London for a few days or going through Hong Kong, going through Tokyo to get to India, going through Dubai, uh, you just kind of, you, you see, you see how everything, you know, works, you see the huge ports, you see, you know, airports, you see commerce, you're just in the midst of commerce all the time. You see real estate and real estate always fascinated me, especially like international real estate and development and like building airports. It's like a 50 year plan, uh, you know, all these sort of things. That's really what interested me as a young person. And so I studied, uh, you know, it started maybe with with civics, um, it kind of like sparked some of that interest and then moving on to world politics and then macroeconomics. And that was all in high school. Then in college, I studied <clears throat> more, more political science, um, more economics. And then I didn't find finance itself. I'd always been interested by markets and like read The Economist um, and um, Wall Street Journal when I could as, you know, growing up, but I didn't really find, find finance and interest rates and like bond math until my very last class in college. And I realized that studying economics was a mistake. And, but instead of, you know, being sad about it, I went to get a master's in finance to formalize my um, interest and in education in finance. And then uh, got my CFA charter over the following few years. So I really formalized that, you know, traditional finance um, by the book, you know, school of thought, and it was all interesting to me and especially the bond and the currency side. Um, but still, <clears throat> it's incomplete in the context of gold and of monetary history and of Bitcoin. So I knew that there was just more there uh, to explore, but you know, I put in several years in the in the bond industry and um, learned a ton. And I would never give I would never give it back because of you know what I learned from just being in the mix. Were you born in the U.S. or were you? Did you move across it? Yes, I was born here, and my dad's family moved here in 1968. So quite, and you know, they they were in. London for 10 years before that. So, uh, yeah, my, my family, my dad's side is very, you know, Western in, in, in its mentality. My mom didn't move to the United States until she was 21. So she's definitely more, you know, Indian in her mentality. So I had both of those growing up, but yeah, I grew up very American. Um, you know, just, um, 
you know, especially not appreciating kind of that global nature until probably, you know, my teenage years. And what was your, what was your dad's <clears throat> job? Was he? My dad, my yeah. dad's a physician. So he, uh, you know, went to high school in Pasadena, California. And um, he, they moved here when he was about, a, 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 you know, a teenager. So, and then he went to USC as well. And he studied uh, medicine in Mexico for two years and then came to the United States and um, got his medical degree in Wisconsin. And, um, and then, you know, he, he's been a physician for, um, you know, 40, 40 years or so now. And, uh, and, but he, he got more into the insurance side of the business, um, early on. <clears throat> so he does both. And, you know, my brother always said he, you know, he wants to be a doctor like his dad. And I said, I was, I want to be a businessman like my dad. So he is definitely <laughs> both. And, um, he, you know, he, he's into the markets too. And he got into the internet, um, boom in the nineties. And I think that's an important, um, foundational experience for me is that watching him trade, uh, the dot-com bubble and get into options and stuff. And I was 12, um, and really interested in it, um, truly. Um, so I think that was really, you know, foundational for me and my love for the markets. So you, you, you do, what was the last thing you learned in your last class? Sorry, that, that was pretty funny. Yeah, the last class I took in college last semester was called money, credit and banking. And it was in the economics department, but it was taught, it was a finance course. It was like, it was like, um, it was like a introduction to fixed income course that, you know, um, with literally like, you know, discounting math and NPVs, you know, and how that makes up the bond price and, you know, just like very basic uh, bond math. And I realized that I, I, I should have been studying finance the whole time and, but it's okay because, you know, I, the, the passion never left and my interest in the markets never left. I was actually, you know, right on top of QE and understood the mechanism of QE and how the Fed was doing that uh, at par or even better than my professors at the time, because I was really um, deep into zero hedge uh, at the time. And, um, you know, like looking at um, like tracking QSIPs from issuance to to homo like their permanent open market operations and um tracking qsips and date and issuance dates and purchase dates and stuff so i was really like in in a zero hedge rabbit hole at the time and so i, I was i was all over it but um you know i was just you know maybe taking the wrong classes but i no regrets i mean you know you learn what you learn and you you compound everything as you learn it so um i'm yeah it was a unique and interesting path. So how did you end up trading, trading the bond market? And I've got a lot of questions about that as well. When, um, once you've, once you've painted the picture of how you made your way to the, the gilded doors. Yeah. So once I finished, uh, school in Spain, I flirted with, uh, like the London job market for a little bit, but, um, ended up coming back to LA cause I knew it was a huge bond industry waiting for me in LA. 
Um, I, I applied to jobs on both the equity and the fixed income side. Um, so I, was, I interviewed on the street itself in New York uh, for a couple of equity research positions. I interviewed for um, a hedge fund position in Connecticut um, at, a, at like a global macro strategy hedge fund. Um, and I didn't get any of the, either of those gigs, but I ended up getting a job at a hedge fund in Orange County, Southern California um, by some ex PIMCO guys. So, and uh, so, you know, a really small shop, uh, 4 billion AUM, 50 people, um, 20 on the investment team, but they didn't have any room on the investment team. And I was, you know, I didn't have any experience in the industry just out of school. So I just took the first uh, ops job I could basically. Um, so ops is like a catch-all for, you know, trade processing, um, you know, portfolio accounting, risk, and um, and then I started to get. They started to give me more of the risk stuff because um, you know the, the portfolio accounting is you know it's very dull and the risk stuff you have to kind of think about the portfolio and they saw that I was into it. So got more and more uh, responsibilities. Um, but my goal was pass the CFA and leverage that to move from, you know, outside the desk to on the desk. And um, eventually uh, that's what happened. Uh, and I, you know, used the opportunity to jump because they didn't have room right there. So I looked for a job and, uh, got a job as a money market trader, um, which was a very like entry level position at that firm. It was like, you start on the cash desk, which means you have, you're, you're managing separate accounts as a, as a shop. And each one of those accounts has buys and sells and has to, you know, sell, you know, sell, buy and sell cash like instruments. So treasury bills, agency discount notes, commercial paper, um, and certificates of deposit, uh, just to be invested at all times, to not have zero yield in the portfolio, to not let everything go to sweep, which means to be swept into a money market fund overnight and just get that yield that you're assigned. Basically, you're giving up basis points there. If you let it sweep, you're going to get 10 basis points. But if you buy, you might get 20 and, and you buy it yourself, you might get 20. And so you're trying to pick up, you're trying to pick up every bit that you can in the cash market. And so I was just doing that for like six months. Uh, and I learned, I mean, I learned so much. It was, uh, it's a dream come true. First Bloomberg terminal, uh, that was my own. At the hedge fund, I shared one and I didn't sit there, right? So my first, you know, Bloomberg terminal, my first, I remember my first $1 million trade, my first $10 million trade you know, you know, then your first hundred million dollar trade, then your first billion dollar trade, you remember all those moments and like the billion dollar trade goes like this, the one million dollar trade, you're the most, you're like shaking, you're sweating, you know, you're sweating. And so I did that. I did that whole journey. But after a few months on the desk, um, I was shadowing the rates people and, uh, you know, you get fortunate, somebody leaves, and you know you're right there and you've you've covered them on purpose you know shadowing and you're like oh i can do it and i'll step in and and all that and so i got i ended up getting a lot of responsibility over the years that i was there 
and ended up being, you know, great strategy and, you know, one of the people putting trade ideas out to the firm and different portfolio managers and um, trading the whole treasury curve at times trading the entire interest rate derivative spectrum. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that at all, you know, at all times. We had a swap sky and uh, um, I was just, thank, you know, happy to be the treasury, you know, the treasury guy. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a long journey. And uh, again, I wouldn't trade any of it uh, or give any of it back because you learn so much along the way. Um, you meet incredible people on the street, you know, uh, truly incredible people on the street. And it doesn't, it's not just New York. Uh, it's, it's people that work for the street all over the world and um, made a lot of great friends that I still have today being, you know, now have been off the desk for about two years now. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about when uh, you, your first trades, although for me, they weren't trades because I was a broker. So I was just, um, you know, facilitating for the trader, you know, putting buyer and seller together. But I remember vividly the first time I, uh, as a trainee on the, the dollar mark spot desk in, in London in 1995. And uh, as a trainee, all you had to do was get the sandwiches and the coffees and dry clean people's suits and get their shoes cleaned and all of this. But if one of them got up to go for a piss, they were like, all right, big nose, sitting here for two minutes. So you'd have to sit there and parrot the numbers that whatever the dollar mark rate was at the time. And there's 16 guys sitting around and they're all smoking, right? Back in these days, mid nineties, the, the, the place was charged with energy and there was half the guys were drunk and still on whatever else they were on the night before. <laughs> and all of a sudden, bam, somebody gave me a bid. I had to relay that bid to the room. I had to put my orange light on to show I had the bid. Then that got hit, fucked the whole thing up. The guy next to me rescued me, <laughs> sorted it all out. <laughs> I got back, the guy comes back from the piss. He's like, what the hell is going on? That, you know, his pod partner, as you call him, that he's like, don't worry, I got it covered. He needs a little bit more time. And you know, I was just shaking, absolutely yeah. shaking. It was like 5 million bucks or something, which, yeah. you know, to me at the time was, oh my God, for these guys, nothing like dust right. in the wind. Yeah. Uh, it's, but that, that you get addicted to that adrenaline, right? Mm -hmm. When, when you're doing the, those first trades. And I got a story for I got a story for you. So light me up. Let's uh, go. This was this was in this was really early. I mean, I was I think the 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 guy who traded the whole curve had just left, and this was like my first week in the in the in the real seat. Um, in the whole curve of, the whole of what? Curve, the whole U.S. Treasury curve from right. from from Treasury bills to thirty year to thirty year bonds and okay. everything in between. And we're mostly a front end shop, so it's like you know most you know mostly in the five to ten year part of the curve is where you are. And this was like, you know, I get an order from the, 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 the PM of the PMs and she says, uh, we need, uh, to, we need to add, you know, a, a quarter year in, in our across accounts and do the math. And I had people to help me do the math and it's like, okay, it's, it's 680 million twos, you, uh, two year notes for, uh, on the runs. And we, you know, it's a big shop and every, you know, you can't just use any counterparty for everything. And so I, um, and I'm, again, I'm just you know, really new. I don't even know all the names of the shops except the big brand names. And so I, I, I called Nomura and 
the PM is standing right next to me. She's like over my shoulder. I call Nomura. I say, hey, can you offer me 600 million twos? And I look at my screen and, he, and it's like 99 and a quarter. And he says 99 plus. And, and I'm like, and, and so I'm like, it's off a quarter. It, you know, he's, he's too expensive. And she says, you know, hang up. And so I hang up and she says, call the next guy. And I say, who do I call? And somebody yells, Paul Clark. And, <laughs> and so I look up Paul Clark. I look at him up and Paul Clark is, it says Paul Clark, Royal Bank of Scotland. So I hit the number. And by the way, I love you, Paul. And he's still a great friend. I call Paul. I've never spoken to him before. I say, hey, Paul, can you offer me 200, you know, 800, 600 million twos? And he says, 99 and a quarter. And I said, I said, you're done. And, um, and then I'm, I'm doing my ticket and, uh, you know, chalking out uh, Royal Bank of Scotland and doing my, you know, and, and I get the ticket on, I get the incoming ticket on the VCon, right? On, uh, on Bloomberg. And it says, Paul Clark, NatWest Markets. And I like, I froze. I went like white and I'm like, what the fuck is NatWest? Because <laughs> I had never heard of NatWest. I don't, I, I know Royal Bank of Scotland very well. I know the name very well. I don't know what NatWest is. And I thought I had fucked up beyond. <laughs> I mean, I just, it was like the most, because I had never done a trade over maybe 10 or 20 million at the time. Uh, let alone this. And uh, it ended up being, it was a name change that, was in the works and we hadn't coded it yet from, I think the broker code is still RBS, uh, when, you know, by the time I left the shop um, on our site. So anyway, it's, it's nerve wracking and it's, um, it's, it's fun. It, it does make it fun. And uh, I've loved the adrenaline of being on the desk. And there are times when I miss that uh, component of it um, because it's real. And, um, and I've, I'll always have fond memories of that. And I, you know, I like telling the stories cause it does keep it alive. Yeah. The same for me. There's, there's a lot of, um, old, um, battle stories, but there's a few things I just want to clear up there for, for any, uh, anybody listening that might be thinking what the hell are these guys talking about? PM, if you just want to let listeners know what a PM is. Portfolio manager, the, the one who's making the investment decisions. Right. And now this is a thing that I found about the bond market. I never studied it. I never broke it. I never even passed by one. Um, to me, you, you, you paid the wrong offer because the, 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 the prices are inverted, right? In bonds. Can you explain to people what's going on? Because, uh, uh, it, you know, like 99 right. and a quarter, um, to me is more expensive than 99. That's just the way the foreign no, exchange said, markets work. I said uh, 99 plus, meaning it's a bond. Uh, plus means a half. A ah, okay. Yes, right. yeah, 99 plus means 99 and a half. And again, this is another thing. Like, I'm like, what is what is plus mean? Yes. <laughs> like, sit there because I because I was trading discount instruments only. So discount is like, uh, you know, it's kind of like represented in a yield way where you want to buy the higher yield. And now you want to buy the lower price because we're talking about coupon instruments and it all is moving so fast. And, um, you know, sitting not on the desk, you don't get these experiences. And when you do get on the desk, uh, you do. And so I, I had great people that, you know, helped me um, both at my shop and on the street, willing to help um, just you know, learn all the lingo, 
And um, you know, you don't remember everything the first time and you, you try to write it all down, but you never read the, you can't, you don't have time to look at your notes. You just don't have time to look at the notes. And uh, cause you just gotta be fast. You just gotta keep asking until you remember what it means and, and all that. So yes, it was, uh, you know, and I'm just making up the numbers cause I don't actually remember what they were at the time. But I remember that, you know, Nomura was more expensive than what I was seeing on my screen. And so, and then, you know, RBS slash NatWest gave me the market. And, um, and that's, on, you know, just for posterity, that's no comment against or for either bank. I did business with both and others and I have great relationships with Paul at NatWest and uh, my sales coverage at Nomura and um, still to this day. And, you know, these guys are texting me uh, just to check in and I do the same. Um, and it's, you, you do form these bonds because you're trading billions with each other. So it's just, there's this trust um, that, you know, if you have to, if you have to break a $60 million trade, you know, within 60 seconds, let's just say within 60 seconds of doing it, you can, you can do it. As long as the market hasn't moved, you know, you have that trust with each other that, you know, you can do certain things and, um, uh, it is a, it's like a special kind of relationships that the buy side and the sell side have with each other. And uh, I, I have relationships with both the sales and the people on the trading, you know, on the desk um, in New York and people that were on the strategy side that were neither that, you know, just come visit once a year on their road shows. Um, so, you know, the great people all around. Yeah, definitely fun days. What made you leave? Um, I got the opportunity to teach at USC and, you know, as I said, USC is a big part of my family and, um, it was something that it was, you know, in a nominal way, kind of the honor of a lifetime to be uh, an adjunct professor at, uh, USC, um, third generation Trojan. And, uh, that was something that I just couldn't pass up and, um, and I was ready, I was like ready for, I had written the time value of Bitcoin a year before that. And I had, um, I had potential as a Bitcoin writer and I had potential as a, a thinker and a researcher. And, um, and then I, you know, it was kind of just, you just take the, take the jump, decide to do it. And it was poorly timed in terms of COVID, but then I guess, perfectly timed in terms of writing the book um, during the pandemic where you couldn't really do anything else. And um, I did have some doubts along the way whether that was the right decision, um, but I just channeled it all into trying to write the best book ever that I could. Have you managed to orange pill some of the old guys back on the desk? Or do you find that pretty difficult? Because I know you I know, do. You know, it's, um, I think, I don't know if I've successfully orange pilled anybody, but I have gotten plenty of people to go long. So, you you know, pick your battles. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably just buying it for the gains and that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're orange pilled. And there is a difference there, but I've gotten plenty of people to go long. And I've gotten some millionaires to go long and you know what? I've met a, a, um, a person that's worth over a hundred million dollars with no Bitcoin. And 
and you know a, you know a lot of people along the way that don't have any um, actually the bigger the more money they have the less likely they are to own any is what I've found um, which is interesting so the people that are like um, you know millionaires um, but um, you know, are like always looking to pick up that extra stock tip or, you know, kind of on top of it, they're already long Bitcoin um, to some degree. I've found it, at least in my circle. Once you get above uh, a certain wealth, I found that they are not long Bitcoin and they don't want the, they don't want the exposure because a 1% position like doesn't do enough for them but it's a nominally large amount of money. So they're not, they're not into it. So it's kind of anecdotal, but it is fascinating to see. And I know, and I just know when I'm talking to people that we're just so early because mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, I've written a book on Bitcoin. I've given it to people. They don't read it. And then they ask me what altcoins they should buy. <laughs> so I just know like, it's just like people, it's like, we're super early. It's like, these are people that are, that are close to me that, that do this. So, and it's nothing against them. It's just that we're early and that's okay. And Bitcoin's not for everybody either. And that's also okay. So the, 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 the teaching gig, do we have a Trojan horse in, uh, what, what, what are you teaching? What's the, what's the course? I am, I am teaching applied finance in fixed income security. So I'm teaching the bond market. I am teaching, uh, the monetary system. And this semester that I finished in May, um, I, you know, they know I'm the author of layered money. I published it, um, literally days after, I think the first class in January. So, and I was updating them on stuff, but I told them, I go, this is not a Bitcoin course. You know, there's nothing about Bitcoin in this course, other than we are going to introduce central bank digital currencies later in the semester. And those exist today because of a technology called Bitcoin. So, you know, Bitcoin maybe appears one time. It's like Bitcoin was invented. And then as a result, we have these things. And um, I also, you know, gave them the option to read the non-Bitcoin chapters in the book as context for their paper topic and all that. Um, so, but I was explicitly, you know, like this is not a Bitcoin course. Yet the, yet the questions keep coming back to it as you get into the future of monetary policy what central bank central bank digital currency is why i believe it's connected to ubi which is universal basic income which is something that we already have in certain forms in the united states and europe and other places in the world and i think it will continue and compound and the fed will get involved in that process via central bank digital currencies ecb etc i think that's all coming uh, for sure but I found that the students, like, they really want to know about it now. They, they want to understand it. And they were like, wow, it's a limited supply. I didn't know that. And so it's like very, they're also um, brand new and, you know, just experiencing it all for the first time. But no, I'm not a Trojan horse like that. Um, I, have, um, I have presented my book to the school and uh, the school is interested in what I have to offer. Um, and so I am pursuing that uh, at USC, but I am a fixed income professor and I take that 
you know, as like someone who takes a fiduciary duty very seriously coming from that world, I, I, I have the same approach to this position and, and it's, they actually don't make me swear by that, right? But they hired me to teach this course. Um, it's a part-time gig for me. It is something that um, they know I'm a practitioner and so I'm gonna bring a certain uh, level of expertise and knowledge about this particular topic of the bond world. And so I do take that very seriously and I don't try to digress and go on Bitcoin rants in the class. Um, but, but guess what, you know, my author, my, in my, my bio is now author of layered money first before anything else. So um, it's, it's hard to miss. Uh, it's hard to miss if you're the student um, on the other side. So um, um, I, I, I enjoy teaching fixed income a lot and uh, explaining the significance of the bond market, but now more, more than ever, you just feel that uh, that the course is incomplete without mentioning the word Bitcoin at the very minimum once, and then you know um, maybe like a supplemental reading that um, you know you send students down, which is now layered money. I mean, let's be honest for 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 my course at least. You must be so zen to 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 not go into rants about Bitcoin. It, it's <laughs> good you know, for you, I, brother. I I I I realize actually. Um, after about two, what happened was after it went from 20,000 to 3,000, nobody wants to hear your rants. You don't really feel like telling anybody. You, you sink into your conviction and you write. So I wrote the time value of Bitcoin. I started the time value of Bitcoin, um, you know, when the price crashed from 20 to, to 3,000. And, and that's when you just like sink into the work. Uh, because it's not about convincing, you know, person A, B, and C that are standing in front of you and ranting. You take those rants inside, you channel them, you polish them, and you write. So I, I stopped. I stopped trying to convince people to buy Bitcoin. I don't do it in even in normal conversations anymore. Um, you know, I I speak. I do media. I do paid speaking. I do paid consults. Um, so I'm, I'm able to, to be, to orange pill as you know, all the time, but it's in a professional way now. And, 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 um, and I, and I do have a Zen because I've been through now, um, 1.5 cycles, 1.5 full cycles of Bitcoin. Um, and so that gives, that gives Zen. ask any Bitcoiner. Yeah. If you, the more cycles you've been through, the more Zen you are about it. <laughs> it's true it's so true and um you chose writing i chose a podcast and uh, it just so happened I, I started this podcast february um 2020 uh just before i was only like four or five episodes deep and it, at that point it was just a project but after that crash I'm like Phew, this is the most important thing i can do i think like you know i did there's, there's no way i'm shutting this down and uh stopping this now because like you, my conviction just kept growing and growing and growing, and and the the urge to to help more and more people understand, uh, you, you can't fight it. And anyone listening, I'm sure there's lots of lurkers out there. They've got an article in them, or they've got uh, a, a podcast or something that they're, they're just itching to to kind of give to the world. You can't stop that either. Yeah, and and do what I did. Okay, I I wrote the time by Bitcoin. Um, and 
I worked on it for months, trying to make it as good as I could. And then I, uh, I published it. I started a Twitter account, a brand new one, because I, of course, was on Twitter, but not, not in the public. Um, so I started a fresh Twitter account for a public facing profile and uh, tweeted the article out and sent and then sent the tweet and sent the article to about 10 to 15 people with open DMs that I had never talked to before. And like three or four of them, who most of you probably follow, retweeted it or tweeted it out. And they were like, this is a great article. And the rest, like the rest is history. And so you never know, um, you never know who's gonna read it, like it, tweet it, and then what type of reader base is gonna give you energy to keep going or a listener base or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, I've paused, I've paused media now for a few months going forward. Like you reached out to me um, probably a couple months ago. And so, um, but since then I've, I've started to pause on, on media, but up until the point at which I paused, I, I essentially said yes to everybody that asked me for an interview. I mean, because I, I said, I can't do it right now. I got to push it out two months, uh, you know, two to three months and just, you know, try to, I can't do more than one or two a week. And so, um, but yeah, people, you know, there are a couple of people that were like, you know, thank you so much. You're the, you know, the third person that we're having on the show. And um, you never know who's going to say yes, who's going to tweet it out. So I encourage people, if you have an angle, just do it. And, and the, the people, the internet will tell you whether it's good or not. I promise you, like, they'll give you the energy to continue or, you know, you'll, you'll realize that maybe you're outside and you have to uh, pivot to something else. Now let's let's talk about the bond market a little bit because I'm sure there's many of the plebs out there would love to know a little bit more about how it works and uh, why it's so important. Uh, you know, like uh, underpins pretty much the the whole of the financial system. What made you fall in love with the bond market and how does it work? Well, I realized that uh, the bond bonds themselves are kind of the anchor of the system. They're the safest form of money. That's really the way to think of it. If you think about a bond versus a stock and you think about a US treasury bond versus like Netflix stock, okay? The Netflix stock is an investment. People understand that that's an investment. That's not cash, right? The treasury bond, maybe some people think of that as an investment and not cash, but in reality, when you think about it and how the financial system is set up, the treasury securities are cash themselves no matter how much duration they have, and duration is a technical term for interest rate risk, the longer the bond is, like a 30-year bond has price risk as interest rates go up and down, and quite a bit of it. Like if interest rates go from 2% to 3% on a 30-year bond, uh, your bond's gonna be worth 70 from 100, let's say, for example, right? It's gonna go down 25 points um, when rates go up 100 basis points, let's just say. so. While the bonds have price, while treasury bonds have price risk, a lot of them don't because a lot of them are much shorter, meaning they, they have like less duration, they have less interest rate sensitivity, but they don't have any credit risk. So there's nobody that can really default that to you, right? Netflix can go bankrupt or the stock can go down a lot. Um, and even Netflix bonds can default, you know, um, there's always that risk, but and even somebody who 
uh, grew up as like a globally minded person without this naivete that uh, the US government will never default, right? Because that's kind of like one hole that people poke at the risk-free rate that people call it, you know, treasury. Well, it's not truly risk-free. Every government has a risk. But what is the true nature of the risk of US treasury securities in today's day and age? Not like, you know, will the US government default in 48 years because of, you know, certain things or even in eight years, right? What is the what is the importance of US Treasury securities today in our current financial system? And the answer to that is it is the only form of cash that is safe. Nothing else is even close to fulfilling that role in any asset class, in any type of like people think of, oh, I have a billion dollars at the bank, that's cash. No, that is a deposit issued by Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase. That isn't cash. It's actually quite far from it. It's a bank liability. And that, that sets up layered money, right? That's part of what layered money is about, is explaining why these, what these uh, distinguishing factors are between different types of money. But really it comes down to US Treasury securities are the only form of cash in our system. And they're actually the only thing that you should have your hands on in the dollar system if you want to avoid a certain fate. Um, the Fed is trying to battle that with unlimited um, bailout mechanisms, right? They're trying to paper over what I just claimed, um, but the facts are there. And that's really what drove me into a rates type of focus in my career is that I just identified that treasuries are um, the line between uh, risk and cash. And that line is the most interesting thing in the world to me. Like, where is the risk? And where, where, where can you avoid it? And that drives the Bitcoin thesis. It drives the gold thesis as well. But gold is in the process of being obsoleted in certain ways by Bitcoin as we speak. Um, that wasn't the case 11 years ago when I was in the Fed, uh, you know, on the zero hedge rabbit hole, right in 2010 during QE. Uh, and it definitely wasn't the case when I started my fixed income career in 2013 or so, um, uh, 2012, when I was like getting into this stuff. Um, and getting into the idea of risk-free versus risk and treasuries and what you know where they where they stand, but now, today, twenty twenty one, post I think a, a flurry of really important news this year that we've had, uh, from El Salvador to corporate buying to bond market integration, to the Canadian ETF to just like a lot of a lot of things that have uh, have proven the digital gold thesis. Now we can stop using the digital gold analogy as much and like relying on it and actually more the obsoleting gold um, way of describing the way that things are going. So I know you asked about the bond market, but that's why Bitcoin just keeps coming back is that um, Bitcoin represent Bitcoin represents um, the, the modern day US treasury security just as much as it does gold. And I started that idea right around the time when I resigned. That's like when I when I had the book kind of brewing. 
I wrote something called the triumvirate of liquidity. U.S. Treasuries, gold, and Bitcoin will dominate the spectrum for the next 10 years as we just go into a world of more and more risk. Um, people will seek the alternative to risk. And that's why they buy treasuries, that's why they buy gold, and that's why they buy Bitcoin. So let's talk about the yield curve. How does that work? Because you, you, you're talking like one year, two year, three year, all the way out to 30 year. And uh, there's, there's either a steep curve or over the, the last couple of years, we've seen it flatten out or maybe even go inverse. Why are there these, like, um, why are they priced so differently for the different terms? If you wouldn't mind explaining how that works. There's different buyers and different sources of demand for different parts of the curve. And, uh, you know, in, in the goal of being as simplistic as we can be, anything out to about three to five years is considered like a true cash, like just a cash substitute, pure cash substitute. The 10 year is considered the trading instrument of like, we want to bet where the US economy and the global macro economy is going and where inflation expectations are going over a 10 year time horizon. We express that through the 10 year. So that a lot of demand is like for the investment or the global macro bet. And 30 year has a completely different like a uh, demographic due to retirement demographics, pension funds, and uh, asset liability matching, um, uh, duration, um, I'm sorry, liability-driven investment, LDI. So AML and, and um, LDI, these two types of sources of demand for 30-year treasuries are, are unique in themselves, but they all overlap. Like you can have cash buyers for 30-year treasuries and you can have, um, liability-driven investors, LDI buying two-year or five-year notes for, you know, certain, to shore up certain things on their, on their um, statistical model, like or how they need to, what trade the, the, the spreadsheet spits out at the end of the day. So um, different parts of the curve represent different buyer bases. They represent different um, summations of investors' expectations. They represent uh, demographical blips, maybe, um, for lack of a better term, they represent, um, holistically the desire to escape, uh, any form of risk for either, uh, um, an investment driven decision or a compliance driven decision. Um, they represent banking, uh, tokens for, for lack of a better term, like, uh, the right to leverage. They represent the right to leverage through repo and through risk-weighted asset um, regulations by Basel III, um, Bank of International Settlements, Fed. Uh, there's just so many things uh, that go into the demand for treasuries. It's a very complex and fascinating market, and you have to you have to you have to know a lot about um, all the different pieces to figure out like what is driving rates up and down and the curve, which was your question. Like what makes the yield curve? It's, it's a very complicated question to answer. And that's actually how I got the USC gig is that I went in and did a couple of lectures on uh, the 30 year part of the curve. And I called it the structural demand for duration, meaning why do people buy 
30-year U.S. Treasuries, and um, they want it, one of the students says, we need to make you a, a shirt that says, uh, old people need 30s, because that was <laughs> their favorite quote of my lecture. And uh, old people need 30s is, while it's like a joke that I make to make, you know, get the students interested in it, it is a very important uh, part of the bond market, um, retiree demographics and pension funds and the buying of 30-year treasuries. So uh, that lecture, I think, um, impressed a couple of the professors over there uh, that were sitting in and I think led to me being offered a position as adjunct professor. Because they saw I, I had a, a unique uh, take on the bond market and I could go into topics in depth so right now, like, for example, Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy, um, you know, I've heard him talk about the bond market uh, at length and uh, the, the reasoning behind, you know, choosing Bitcoin in, instead. And I've heard him talk about the 10 year or the 30 year. Uh, and what, what would a company, why would a company do that? Why would a company buy a 30 year bond or Michael himself, for example, uh, you know, a high net worth individual? Um, at, you know, what's the current rate of the 30 year? Uh, it's in the two handle. It's like 2% or something. Yeah. And if we believe CPI is at like anywhere between two and a half or 4%, then over time, it just seems like a crazy thing to do. Uh, but you obviously have a completely, you know, different view on that and yeah, uh, I mean in your experience. So help us understand. Yeah, it comes down to your denomination. Just like if you're if you're a U.S. dollar denominated company, owning a thirty-year treasury um, is probably not one of the first things that you're doing as a corporate treasurer. Uh, if anything, you're buying thirty-year corporate bonds to get some spread above uh, the U.S. Treasury um, yields in that part of the curve. But spreads are very low too. So you're buying corporate bonds, you know, below 3% yield as well. And, you know, the reason isn't to make the 3% coupon or even to make the negative, you know, let's say negative half percent real interest rate if you measure inflation 50 basis points above it. Um, it. It's just like, what's the investment universe and what's the risk spectrum and how, you know, where do you want to, you have to diversify. You know, the answer to that is like, well, are you going to buy all, put all your money in the NASDAQ if you're a corporate treasurer. No, you're just not going to do that. So, um, you know, I love, I love the people that are still trying to convince others that they need to buy Bitcoin instead of 30 year us treasuries. But I've made the decision to not, you know, get into that debate. I think at least I'm post that debate. I think many people have switched their allocation, switched their denomination. They want to buy Bitcoin. They understand, Bitcoin, but yeah, I, I, I don't think of them as the same thing. It's just, they're just not Bitcoin denominated people. They're dollar denominated organizations and people. And so they're going to seek dollar returns and they're going to have their sharp ratios that, you know, tell them what optimal portfolio to have. And it's going to be some stocks, it's going to be some bonds, it's going to be some U.S. treasuries. And, um, and they, hire, they hire fiduciaries to do that for them. And the fiduciaries make the decisions. The treasurers barely do that. They hire consultants that tell them which investment managers to hire, which tell them how to allocate. And the corporate treasurer says, oh, I, you know, we should do this and this and this. And the investment manager says, actually, that's wrong. You should change your mandate 
to let us do this, this, and this, because, you know, you don't understand investing, go make your widgets. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll buy bonds and stocks for you. And they don't even hire the same managers. They hire this manager for stocks. They may hire this manager for bonds and their consultant tells them don't give more than 20% to any individual manager. So it's like, there's so many other things going on um, that I, I think the, the bond market versus Bitcoin uh, thing, it's boring to me. I, I commend Michael Saylor and others. You gotta, they have to, they have to do that. Um, like NIDIG, you know, all those conversations, they have to convince to make their business grow. They have a product. Who buys it? Treasures, right? So how do they make fees? They have to increase AUMs. They have to get people to buy. But I'm not trying to preach to corporate treasures. I wrote the book for the people and um, for the government slash central banks. Um, I think corporate treasurers are in their own kind of in their own world and it doesn't necessarily cross over with what I'm trying to teach or get across about Bitcoin as a commodity. Like corporations have never owned, you know, corporate treasurers have never really owned gold. So why would they need a digital gold? Um, it's going to underperform their, their, their portfolio will underperform if they don't own Bitcoin. So, you know, that's as much as I have to say to them, but it's hard for me to advocate Bitcoin to their risk profile, let's say. And it, this leads to the, the, the next question, which I've spoken to Andy about as well, uh, you know, him being a, a wealth manager and him writing uh, Why Buy Bitcoin and, uh, you know, he did the way he explained it was once he had figured out Bitcoin, gone down the rabbit hole and figured it all out. He he had to write the book because he felt the fiduciary duty. Uh, you know, this is something that you carry. If you see an, uh, an investment opportunity, you cannot withhold it from your clients. I, I think that's like one of the oaths that you have to say or, or take. Is that correct? Am I getting this right so far? Yes, I really do take that seriously. Um, it This is something that people do have a fiduciary duty to research this thing properly now. Um, and uh, if you if you are not reading about Bitcoin, um, you are bordering on some some responsibility issues. So I don't want to you know make anything dramatic, but you really need to you really need to uh, get your research going and um, you know not just 60 second CNBC clips to make uh, a, a judgment about Bitcoin. And I think that is important. I um, I stepped away from the fiduciary role to do this. So this was done as a teacher. I tried to do this as a teacher and nothing, and nothing else. That's why I say I wrote it for the people. Um, I did not write this for a fixed, in, uh, like an investment manager with a fiduciary duty to try to convince them to buy Bitcoin for their clients. I didn't, I write this as a, you know, own, if you own your own keys, you have a first layer money that is empowering to the individual. Right. And that is that I wrote the book from, from that lens. And I, I want people to know that I wrote that I wrote the book for people. And this is something I really want to hammer home. Like we, we have this now, this is here. This is Bitcoin. It's going to be the new base layer. So if you're not owning your keys, and you're trading it 
like willy-nilly or you're thinking about exchanging it for something else just stop and think you know what how, how can you hammer that home like nick like you know how many people do you think own bitcoin without realizing what they own yeah i think people should use bitcoin send it to themselves from their exchange and back and um have different wallets and do wallet research and hot wallet research and cold wallet research and a hardware wallet research and your you know paper wallet research you know really learn what it is to to have bitcoin and until that i think most people will still be depository minded people they'll they'll want somebody else to have the keys and they just want to be able to provide a you know a password or um a face scan or you know something to access um their money just like in a, a typical banking way i i struggle with um how to convince people or explain that to people because uh, cold storage is not easy it's not something that you should just take lightly and so my main thing is i advocate send five dollars of bitcoin to yourself play with sats play with the lightning network get a lightning network wallet get a bitcoin wallet watch copy and paste your transaction into a block explorer watch it go into a block see how long the blocks take feel you should feel bitcoin and then make your decision do i want to keep this myself or do i want to trust a third party and um, outside of that it's it's really now tough for me to go out and advocate everyone do their own um, cold storage because there are people that i know that i just know they're not i know they're not ready and it's not necessarily age um although you know you don't want uh, uh people that are older to to make certain mistakes and you don't trust them to use computers and phones the same way that uh, maybe younger people do um but you know i just i can't stress enough use bitcoin yourself down at least download a wallet for your smartphone um write the seed phrase down delete the app try to recover it from it from your spouse's phone um all these little things uh are are probably more important than you know how much you have because once you realize how how cool it is and how special it is you'll you'll probably want more of it and in your book you li liken it to uh like a land grab i think is the uh the, the terminology that you used which yeah. i think is great yeah, that helps people understand a little bit as well yeah it's scarce so you know you've got to get some and it's not it's not just being handed out or doesn't really grow on trees it it it, it comes to being by uh, computational energy. And that's something that's very interesting. Um, so people, uh, you know, if you understand the mechanics of Bitcoin, you'll become more bullish on it because it's, you'll realize, you'll realize it's an elegant system. And, um, you know, also that's another thing is like, uh, trying to convince somebody to understand the difficulty adjustment, mining itself, um, one-way cryptography, uh, like an open network, open source development, all these things, trying to explain them at once, it's, it's, it's really tough. And so that's why I've tried to channel all my orange pilling into writing now. <laughs> it is a, a huge challenge, mate. It, it truly is. Um, well, if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Oh, my goodness. Um, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, it would be, it's hard to, it's a really, that's a really tough question. Um, you know, actually, I think a lot of the people that are, are thought leaders um, in, let's say, the tech and corporate world are already out there um, advocating Bitcoin. Um, you already have like uh, celebrities out there already advocating for it. So I would choose the head of state of a really large, let's say, Asian country. Um, and I'm, I, so instead of naming somebody, because I don't, I don't love any politician, I dislike <laughs> most of them no matter what party or country they're from, uh, they mostly seem disingenuous, but I'd give it to the politician in Asia, um, you know, with a very large population that is ready to recognize um, maybe some independence from the dollar in a way that won't, um, you know, in a way that won't uh, invoke uh, or evoke a military level reaction from the US government. So like an ally. And so, you know, pick, pick which one of the three or four Asian countries, you know, that are out there. Um, but it's that that's who I would pick. So, so uh, but I, in the reason I don't want to name anybody in Bitcoin, we don't have any leaders and that's really important. So um, let's get the Asian version of El Salvador. Uh, that's, that's the, that's the person I would orange pill next. Yeah, great answer, mate. And there's no wrong answer, so don't sweat it. You know, <laughs> Tupac. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we've 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 had the rock before, so uh, you know why not Tupac? Yeah. yeah, go for it. Well, mate, is is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to cover before we uh, we start wrapping up? No, this this has been really fun. I appreciate uh, all your questions because. Uh, it's, 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 um, I've talked about layered money a lot. And, um, so I enjoy not talking about the book and talking about the bond market. Um, I want people to go read it. It's, it's, I put a year of my life into this, um, you know, physically and then mentally many more years. And so, uh, I hope that you'll, you'll read it, like it, reach out to me. Um, let me know. I love hearing from the readers and thank you guys for all your support. Mate, it's a great book. I love the way that you you structured it. You've got so much great history in there as well. You even touched on the tulips. That's that's one for the plebs, right? Absolutely. Uh, but uh, you know, um, you know, throughout the uh, the course of history, and uh, it's it's really great. It's very very well written. Definitely one that uh, everybody should pick up and and learn from. So appreciate your work, man. I really do. It's uh, it's Thanks been great to uh, been great to meet you and great to have you on the show and. Uh, I look forward to uh, doing another one with your new book whenever you drop that. But for now, let's make sure people find you on Twitter. What is the handle and what's the website? Where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. And uh, you can find me at layeredmoney.com or go find my book on Amazon uh, all over the world. Excellent. Thanks, Nick. I'll catch you next time, mate. Take care. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and thank you, of course, Nick, for coming on the show. It was great to get to hang out with you and uh, pull up some of the old war stories from the past there. I hope that didn't bore too many listeners talking about some of the uh, the early days when you were learning how to trade, some of the fuck-ups, some of the experience that we shared together as young men trying to make our way in the world of finance. Um it's uh, you know, great memories. It was great to, um, to, to walk down memory lane with you. 
And uh, to obviously talk about your book and your thoughts about layered money and how that's going to play out, uh, what you're doing now at USC. Uh, I know you, you, you might not think you're a Trojan horse, Nick, but anybody listening, I'm sure will echo the sentiments. God damn, it's great to have you on our side and have you in uh, this position where you are able to answer these questions for these young, impressionable minds that are coming in, learning about the bond market and anything else that you're talking about, but then linking that to Bitcoin and pushing you and asking you, and how does this relate? This is going to go on to become um, great work and something that you can be proud of, the amount of people that are going to come away with extra knowledge. So I look forward to the next book, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, please go check out the show sponsors. You know who they are. It's coinfloor.co.uk, relay.ch, swanbitcoin.com, and shiftcrypto.ch, all forward slash bitten. I look forward to the next show. Take care.